All right, we are back, and I, I, I'm sorry to note that I have not been promoting Comet Neowise on this program, but the truth of the matter is, this thing ain't no hail bop. I do recommend you might want to go out, find the Big Dipper, and go look below it and see if you can't pick it out in the evening sky. Take binoculars, because you're going to have a hard time spotting it without them. But it does put on a nice little show through your specs. But, you know, through binoculars, it looks actually a little bit less impressive than Hale Bob did to the naked eye. But, you know, Hale Bobs don't come along just every decade. You know, as I recall, back in 1997, we had Comet Hale Bob and also Comet Hayatutake, which was big, considerably more impressive than Comet Neowise. But, you know, I don't want to keep running into the ground. It's a cool little thing. Uh, do yourself a favor and, you know, go check it out. Because if you miss it this time, you're going to have to wait something like 6,800 years for its next appearance. Now, we spent a lot of time in the last segment begging on Donald Trump because how can you not? People aren't just dying by the thousands, they're dying by the tens of thousands, thanks to the administration's mishandling of this coronavirus pandemic. So we feel it is our duty to keep holding the orange man's feet to the fire between now and Election Day. And uh, as I look down in front of me, with the microphone to my right and papers arrayed on my left, I, I just have to scratch my head and laugh, I suppose at the two articles I have juxtaposed. The one on the left is from The Week magazine in early 2017. The headline was, Trump still skeptical about Russian hacking. It's funny to see the varying opinions that are presented in The Week because that's what it's specialized in. This is actually just slightly before Trump assumed the presidency. The New York Times said that Obama was right to retaliate against Russia's outrageous intrusion in our elections, but he should have acted sooner. There are also legitimate questions over whether this response will deter Russia. Still, said the New York Times rather prophetically, Trump will not have to decide whether he will side with U.S. intelligence agencies or his authoritarian friend in the Kremlin. Well, we know which way that went. Recall him standing up at the podium with Vladimir Putin on his left, disputing intelligence, finding that there had been interference in the election, pointing out that he'd just spoken with Putin, had no reason to disbelieve him. Of course, not one month later, there was reporting that Emmanuel Macron had been the target of fake news spread by Russian media, the victim of thousands of cyber attacks by Moscow-backed hackers. Kremlin-run outlets like RT and Sputnik News had claimed that uh, Macron was supported by a gay lobby and is a U.S. agent for U.S. banking interests. While the Mueller investigation was underway and an election was coming up upon us, there was also... Another look at what the Russians were up to. Quote from the briefing section in the week, this one from August 2018. To the question, what are the Russians doing? The magazine answered, the Kremlin is waging a coordinated campaign to influence and disrupt U.S. elections in order to create doubt about their legitimacy and further divide and weaken the country. Russian hackers have already been detected trying to infiltrate the computer systems of at least three congressional campaigns. The Russians also appear to be continuing to run influence and disinformation campaigns on social media using fake online accounts designed to inflame America's political divisions. To which we would add, hello, yes, yes. To the question, have election systems been made secure? The magazine answered correctly, no. America's outdated election infrastructure offers ample targets for hackers. 
Just leaving apart all of the Mueller investigation and Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and Ukrainian connections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, ground we've gone over before many times. We'd simply cut to the March 20th issue of the week to note that they were noting at that time that the Russian government was inciting racial violence to sow chaos in the U.S. They noted that ahead of the 2016 election, the Russian government created fake Black Lives Matter groups and sought to depress black voter turnout in order to benefit President Trump. This year, 2020, officials believe Russia is trying to goad white supremacists and black extremists into violence using private Facebook groups and fringe message boards to avoid detection. Intelligence officials told Congress last month, that would be in February, that Russia is again seeking to boost Trump, but backed off that assessment to say that Russia has no clear favorite after a furious Trump fired his national intelligence chief, Joseph McGuire. Now, as you may recall, Robert Mueller spent a lot of time investigating Russiagate, felt that he could not completely exonerate the president from crimes, crimes for which many of his associates were sent to prison. Yet William Barr has apparently still managed to keep the full report away from public scrutiny. Now, admittedly, the Attorney General did pre- present a summary to the public saying, nothing to see here, just move it along. Suffice it to say, there is something to Russiagate, which takes us to Roger Stone. William Falk, editor-in-chief at The Week, noted this last week that the Sphinx has spoken, telling you how perturbed the rather taciturn Robert Mueller was after President Trump commuted crony Roger Stone's prison sentence. Trump's gift of a get-out-of-jail-free card was the crowning act in what is one of the most brazen cover-ups in American history, one that ultimately defeated Mueller, the special counsel who ran the Russia investigation. In a Defense of Washington Post op-ed, Mueller complained that when a key figure like Stone lies to investigators, it strikes at the core of the government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. A jury, Mueller noted, had convicted Stone of lying under oath about his many communications with WikiLeaks and the Russian hackers who stole Democratic Party emails. Several witnesses testified they heard Stone directly telling an excited Trump about future email releases. Recently, in a public plea to Trump, To save him from jail, Stone said, he knows I was under enormous pressure to turn on him, but I didn't, pointed out William Falk. In other words, I've got the goods on you, Mr. President. Where's my reward for not ratting you out? Said Falk, he's been rewarded. Had Stone testified truthfully that he served as a conduit between Russian hackers and candidate Trump, Mueller's investigation might have ended very differently. Despite claims that Mueller conducted a witch hunt, Jeffrey Robin recently argued in The New Yorker his report was ultimately a surrender. Mueller didn't dig into Trump finances and tax returns to find out why he's so fond of Vladimir Putin and Russia. Mueller never demanded that Trump testify, settling for written answers the special counsel said contained several falsehoods. That's called perjury. Sooner or later, Trump's financial records will be made public. And perhaps then the mystery will be solved. But the big reveal won't happen until after voters decide whether Trump deserves four more years. Now, after Trump did the indefensible and commuted Roger Stone's sentence, the White House officially produced numerous statements regarding the commutation, which CNN felt obliged to fact check. We'll just do a couple of them. 
Statement from the press secretary. Today, Donald J. Trump just signed an executive grant of clemency commuting the unjust sentence of Roger Stone Jr. Roger Stone is the victim of the Russian hoax that the left and its allies in the media perpetrated for years in an attempt to undermine the Trump presidency, noted CNN. In fact, the Russian investigation was not a hoax and it did not originate from Democrats or the media. It began in July 2016 after the FBI received a tip about potential coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. The FBI director at that time was James Comey, a Republican. Later, after Trump fired Comey in May 2017, the Trump-appointed Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed Robert Mueller as a special counsel to continue the investigation. Rosenstein and Mueller are both Republicans. Skipping ahead. Stone has appealed his conviction and is seeking a new trial. He maintains his innocence and has stated that he expects to be fully exonerated by the justice system. Mr. Stone, like every American, deserves a fair trial and every opportunity to vindicate himself before the courts. Noted CNN, the judge already ruled that the trial was fair and there was no misconduct by the jury. Stone is appealing his case and has raised many of the same issues about the jury in his filings with the appeals panel. Meanwhile, last week, Facebook dropped accounts that were tied to Roger Stone. Facebook said it removed dozens of accounts linked to the hate group Proud Boys to President Trump's longtime ally Roger Stone and to employees of Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro, among others. The network tied to both Stone and the Proud Boys had fake accounts post about local politics in Florida, as well as Stone's books, websites, and media appearances. Facebook said Stone's own Facebook and Instagram accounts were also banned. Now you think, after all this back and forth about skullduggery between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and various intermediaries between those entities and WikiLeaks, etc. You'd think that after all of that, the president would stick to his story that there was nothing to Russia. It was all a hoax, kind of like COVID-19. It's all just a big hoax from his political opponents. You would therefore undoubtedly be surprised to see the July 10th column by Mark Thiessen, described as a Washington Post columnist. He was a former speechwriter for George W. Bush. A notable conservative Republican, I just have to quote from his column for its comedy value, said Mark Thiessen, During an Oval Office interview with me last week, President Donald Trump acknowledged for the first time that in 2018, he authorized a covert cyber attack against Russia Internet Research Agency, the St. Petersburg-based troll farm that spearheaded Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and was doing the same in the 2018 midterm elections. Asked whether he launched the attack, Trump replied, correct. Trump said in 2016, President Barack Obama knew before the election that Russia was playing around or he was told whether or not it was so or not, who knows? And he said nothing. And the reason He said nothing was he didn't want to touch it because he thought Hillary Clinton was winning because he read phony polls. So he thought she was going to win. And we had the silent majority that said, no, we like Trump. The horrible part about this is he's quite right about the fact that Obama knew there was Russian interference in the election and didn't take forceful enough steps. And it's true that he thought Hillary Clinton was likely to win, as did all of us. And he thought that was the best course of action. But it appears that the result of his inaction is now the Trump presidency. But wait, this piece gets better. 
said Mark Thiessen. Unlike Obama, Trump says he acted on the intelligence he was given about Russian election interference by striking its cyber capabilities. Look, we stopped it, the president said. The cyber attack was previously reported in the Washington Post, but Trump had never officially confirmed it until now. Senior U.S. officials also confirmed to me that the strike occurred and was effective, taking on the Internet Research Agency offline. Trump has elevated the U.S. Cyber Command to the status of Unified Command in 2017 and gave it new authorities to conduct offensive cyber operations in 2018. The cyber attack appears to have been the first that was designated to frustrate Moscow's attempt to interfere with a U.S. election, said Thiessen. Russian interference in the 2018 midterm election was serious and pervasive. And we'd have to say, indeed, it, it may have been. But doesn't it seem odd that we're only now we're hearing about the efforts of the administration to counter it? Now, it is true that in February of 2018, then-Director of National Intelligence Daniel Coates testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee that the U.S. is under attack and that Russia had been emboldened in 2018 by the success of its previous influence operations, for which the United States had imposed no price. During the hearing, Democrats accused the Trump administration of failing to prepare to protect the 2018 vote. We talked about that on this program. Notes Mark Thiessen, well, it turns out Trump did have a plan. In March 2018, during a White House news conference, Trump was asked about possible Russian election interference. We won't allow that to happen, Trump said. We'll counteract whatever they do. We'll counteract it very strongly. And unlike his predecessor in 2016 said Mark Thiessen, and he did so, using America's offensive cyber capabilities in an unprecedented way against Russian interference operations. And here's the part I like the very best. Said the president, nobody has been tougher on Russia than I have. Anyway, if you believe that President Donald Trump is going to use offensive cyber capabilities to prevent the Russians from helping him get reelected, we would like to do some real estate transactions with you. Honestly, uh, words fail. But since we're taking a look back over the years at, at, at things that seem surreal in the world of politics, let's go to the piece in the New York Times from a few days back titled, Colin Powell Still Wants Answers. Notes the distinguished New York Times, in 2003, Colin Powell made the case for invading Iraq to halt its weapons program. The analysts who provided the intelligence now say it was doubted inside the CIA at the time. The author of this piece, Robert Draper, goes on to describe how he interviewed Powell back in 2006 about what was going on in Iraq, except he wouldn't speak to Draper at that point. He did have a conversation in 2018, wherein Colin Powell paraphrased a line about the Iraq's supposed weapons of mass destruction from the intelligence assessment that informed his UN speech, which some intelligence officials had assured him was rock solid. Draper notes that not, not long after meeting Powell, I did manage to speak to several analysts, 
presumably at the CIA, who helped produce the classified assessment of Iraq's supposed weapons program, and who had not previously talked with reporters. In fact, I learned there was exactly zero proof that Hussein had chemical weapons stockpiles. The CIA analysts knew only that he once had such a stockpile before the 1991 Persian Gulf War, and that it was thought to be as much as 500 metric tons before the weapons were destroyed. I have to stop at this point and say, I just think it's a shame that people have to read the New York Times in July of the year 2020 to discover what we were talking about on Radio Parallax back in the year 2003, maybe even 2002. There were lots of people that were CIA analysts at that time frantically trying to telegraph to the press that this information was BS. They were cherry-picking oddities here and there to try and make the case for weapons of mass destruction that these guys knew was bunk. But after all these years, we apparently have Colin Powell shocked, shocked to find out there's gambling going on here. The title of the piece, by the way... Is Colin Powell still wants answers? Well, you know, he had answers a long, long time ago, if he wanted to seek them then. Seeking them 17 years later is, is a bit lame. I don't know. I talked to otherwise intelligent people, people who, you know, didn't listen to Radio Parallax, who remain under the impression that the reason we had a second war in Iraq was because Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Or at least there was an, a lot of evidence that he might. And that sort of thing is frustrating because, well, it, you know, it, it just ain't so. What was that American humorist Ken Hubbard once said, it's not the things that you don't know that hurt you, it's the things that you think you know that just ain't so. And I'd like to think, I'd like to think as we talk into a microphone week after week, year after year, that things are getting better. But I got to tell you, the following piece gives me pause. Article from... The Guardian. Like I said, today's kind of a Guardian fest, written by Julian Borger, described as in Washington. The piece goes as follows. The Trump administration's been consulting the former government lawyer who wrote the legal justification for waterboarding on how the president might try to rule by decree. Yes, the subheadline of this piece was Trump consults Bush torture lawyer on how to skirt law and rule by decree. John Yu told The Guardian he's been talking to White House officials about his view that a recent Supreme Court ruling on immigration would allow Trump to issue executive orders on whether to apply existing federal laws. If the court really believes what it just did, then it just handed President Trump a great deal of power. Yu, a professor at Berkeley Law, said, adding the Supreme Court has said President Obama could choose not to enforce immigration laws for about 2 million cases. And why can't the Trump administration do something similar with immigration? Create its own program, but it could do so in areas beyond that, like health care, tax policy, criminal justice, inner city policy. I talked to them a fair amount about cities because of the disorder. One wonders if what's going on in Portland right now and in, in other locations was, you know, as a result of a John U. green light. I don't know. In a Fox News Sunday interview, that would be on the 19th, Trump declared he would try to use that interpretation to force through decrees on health care, immigration, and various other plans in the coming months. Among those various other plans, we have to wonder about, you know, sending his henchmen out to Portland. 
Constitutional scholars and human rights activists have also pointed to the deployment of paramilitary federal forces against protesters in Portland as a sign that Trump is ready to use his broad interpretation of president powers as a means to suppress basic constitutional rights. Lawrence Tribe, a Harvard constitutional law professor, wrote on Twitter, This is how it begins. The dictatorial hunger for power is insatiable. If ever there was a time for peaceful civil disobedience, that time is upon us. John Yu became notorious for a legal memo he drafted in August 2002 when he was Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel. It stated, quote, Necessary or self-defense may justify interrogation methods that might violate the criminal prohibition on torture. And memos drafted by you were used to justify waterboarding and other forms of torture on terrorism suspects at CIA block sites all around the world. This is just the guy you want consulting with Donald Trump. Asked if he now regretted his memos, you replied, I'm still not exactly sure about how far the CIA took its interrogation methods, but I think if they stayed within the guidelines of the legal memos, I think they weren't violating American law. In a book titled Defender-in-Chief, due to be published next week, you argues that Trump was fighting to restore the powers of the presidency in a way that would have been approved by the framers of the U.S. Constitution. It should be noted that constitutional scholars have rejected Yu's arguments as ignoring limits on the executive powers of the president imposed by the founders who were determined to prevent the rise of a tyrant. On the deployment of federal paramilitary units against Portland, you said he did not know enough of the facts to deem whether it was an abuse of executive power. But even John Yu had to add, it has to be really reasonably related to protecting federal buildings. If it's just graffiti, that's not enough. It really depends on what the facts are. Obama's Director of National Security, James Clapper, appeared on CNN in the wake of what was going on in Portland to just say this is beyond the pale. And in front of me, I have a piece that I, I, I don't think I have the stomach to do today. It's titled, Coronavirus, What Newsweek Failed to Mention About Continuity of Government, piece by Whitney Webb. And even though it fits right in with today's show, frankly, I need a break. We'll talk about it on next week's show. Your homework, in the meantime, dear listener, is to look up COG, or Continuity of Government, and do a little bit of reading. Also... When we do talk about this in the show, you may want to consider having a couple of stiff drinks handy. Although not, of course, if you plan to drive. Let's talk about hiding political skullduggery in other countries. In fact, let's go to a land down under, a land of wonder, and talk about what happened in Australia back in the 1970s. It's kind of an incredible story and hard to believe that it actually happened, but it did. I remember when it happened. Australia at that time, this is 1975, had a prime minister named Gough Whitlam. As I recall, back in the day, certain intelligence types were getting reports put in the likes of Newsweek and Time about how this guy was really kind of a pain. He was going his own way. He was being quite independent, a little too independent. He was a bit of a flaming liberal. Back then, we were quite concerned about, you know, communism still marauding its way around Southeast Asia. And so, although there were a lot of rumblings about Whitlam here in the press in America, I don't think anybody expected what happened to happen, which was that using a, what was considered a vestigial power, in this case of the queen, Queen Elizabeth, who was and still is 
officially the head of state in Australia and many other countries in the British Commonwealth. The Governor General of Australia, Sir John Kerr, who was the Queen's representative down under, exercised his power to dismiss the elected Prime Minister, which he did. There was a lot of outraged Australians at that time, especially those of what described as a Republican bent. People wanted to get rid of the monarchy, in other words, because that's what a republic is, a government without a monarch. They wanted to know back then whether the Queen had been warned of Sir John Kerr's plans or had encouraged him. Well, after all these years, official documents have been released, and it appears the mystery is now largely solved. Kerr's official secretary deposited his correspondence with Buckingham Palace in the Australian archives in 1978, calling it personal and confidential. The Queen wanted it kept secret until 2037. But Jenny Hawking, an Australian historian, embarked on a legal battle four years ago to have the letters made public. On May 29th, the High Court agreed that they were public records and ordered their release. And what do you know? It turns out Kerr never informed the Queen directly of his plan. Therefore, he supposedly acted at the direction of the Queen, but never, in fact, informed the Queen of what he was about to do. The records show that he did have extensive correspondence with a Sir Martin Charteris, who was the Queen's private secretary at the time, who reportedly, or allegedly, showed Kerr's letter to the Queen and replied on her behalf. The two men discussed, quote, reserve powers, unquote, an unwritten and disputed form of visceral authority that Kerr used to sack Whitlam. A week before he did so, Charteris later admitted he was not very well versed in the Australian Constitution, but he assured Kerr that such powers existed and could be used. Now, Buckingham Palace is saying the letters confirm that not neither the Queen nor Royal Household had any part to play in Kerr's decision, but Jenny Hawking disagrees, saying to her they reveal clearly and unavoidably that the palace did play a part. But my question is, who in the palace? Anyway, it's a fascinating little tale of... Uh, of dirty tricks in politics, and I, I wish I was more of an authority on it. I tried to get a friend of mine who was in Australia at the time to talk about this, but he said, look, I'd only been there a couple months when it happened. I'm not an expert, but uh, maybe I could do some reading on it. Might make a future interesting little interlude on the program. We need to close this with something science and something that's from the good news department. Here's one. Piece from New Scientist magazine. The headline is, Rockets Armed with Talcum Powder Could Stop Space Junk. The magazine notes there are 2,000 active satellites in orbit today, along with 3,000 dead satellites and many more pieces of dangerous smaller debris. Often satellites must dodge out of the way of this debris or other satellites, but defunct satellites can't adjust their movements. So Darren McKnight at the U.S. technology firm Centauri and colleagues think they have a solution using suborbital sounding rockets normally used to launch experiments briefly into space from which they could launch a cloud of particles in front of potentially dangerous debris and change its trajectory. The rockets would carry a small capsule capable of emitting a cloud of particles. It could be as simple as 100 grams, about 4 ounces, of talcum powder. It's noted that the timing would need to be exact because the capsule would have to release its particles about 10 seconds in front of the target object at altitudes of hundreds of kilometers. But sounding rockets are relatively cheap at a few million dollars, ouch, and can be launched from many locations around the world. Now, how does that work? Well, if you hit enough, you know, material, powder or something, just to exert a slight deceleration, that might be enough to bring it down from orbit. Can they predict where they'll land? Um, I, I suspect not very well. 
Yeah, so if you own a hard hat, you might want to find out when one of these operations is going on. That definitely does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. On next week's show, we may want to talk a little bit about the dilemma over opening schools come fall. That is a, that's a thorny problem, or going to be. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. Actually, we might even see you sooner than that. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. We'll see you soon.